Thank you, Pastor Randy. Good morning, church. Uh, We'll be together this morning in a new book that we're starting called Galatians. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. And any parents with kids up through fifth grade that want to, feel free to uh, head to Gospel Project. Everybody else will be in uh, Galatians. If you're new with us, our habit every Sunday morning is to gather uh, together and uh, pray what the Scriptures say, read what the Scriptures say, sing what the Scriptures say, and then to open the Word and uh, hear. Most often, we work our way book by book through uh, the various 66 books of the New Testament. As we often do when we start a new book, we'll buy some of those um, ESV Scripture journals that have a single book in the Bible and places to take notes. So if you're somebody who likes to do that, there are some back of the bookstall Uh, for sale for the cost we got them. So feel free to get those if you want. And I'd love to give one away to someone who would use it. Anybody want one? Spencer. Everybody give Spencer some love. Spencer, you dropped the Word of God. (laughs) Um, So we'll... uh, We'll work our way, Lord willing, through this, uh, this book for the rest of the year and hopefully learn a lot uh, together. If you would, turn with me in your Bible to Galatians 1, and if you don't have one, then under the seat in front of you, there's a blue one. Feel free to take that if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, and in those Bibles, we'll be on page 565 in a few minutes, page 565. Um, how many of you have already had a Coke today? I see a few honest people, and I'm not sure about the rest of you. There's been, there's been some Cokes consumed. Uh, Coke is, Coca-Cola is one of the most iconic brands uh, on the planet. It's said that the Coca-Cola logo is readily identifiable by 94% of the world's population. That is crazy. Uh, I've personally been in Rural villages in third world countries with no electricity, gone in a shop where there's no floor, just dirt, and seen cases of Coke ready for purchase. And it's pretty sweet. They pour it into a little baggie and give you a straw. Anybody have one of those? Uh, So you get a Coke in a sack. And it messes with the experience, but it's uh, still a Coke. It's estimated that 1.7 billion servings of Coca-Cola products are consumed every day. Oh my gosh. But it, always, it wasn't always that way. Uh, in fact, when I was a kid in the mid-1980s, uh, some of you weren't born yet, but uh, Coke was struggling. Its shares were slipping because not enough people were sipping. And uh, enthusiasm for the drink was at an all-time low. So executives, some of you may remember this, made a bold decision. They decided they were going to roll out a new formula for Coke. Replace the old and replace, uh, replace the old with a, a brand new formula. This hadn't been done in 99 years. So by April 1985, the new Cokes hit the, hit the store and the old Cokes were gone. I don't know why, but I still remember as a child going to the store and seeing like enormous mountain of new Coke, and we took some home and tried it, and it was disgusting. And it turns out we weren't the only ones who felt that way. 
um, customers went absolutely ape crazy. They uh, started stockpiling the old Coke. They started campaigns to bring it back. Calls flooded Coca-Cola headquarters. Just think there will you didn't use email or cell phone or text message or social media then. You had to do this with a phone. Um, and protest groups started, I'm not making this up, protest groups like, quote, the Society for the Preservation of the Real Thing and Old Cola Drinkers of America. All of this was pre-social media. The firestorm was so great that a mere 79 days later, Coca-Cola reversed course. It is known as the greatest blunder of a company in terms of its marketing in U.S. history. So no longer would you go to the store and see only the new Coke. Now there was the old Coke and the new Coke next to each other, and eventually new Coke died altogether. Now, when they put the old Coke back, it was dubbed as the return to Coca-Cola Classic. The new didn't deliver, but it did something that was totally unexpected. It caused people to appreciate what they already had. It made Coke soar again. Now, not in the way intended, of course, but it worked. Uh, friends, today we're going to start our journey through the New Testament book of Galatians. And Galatians is a clarion call for Christians and church churches to return to the gospel, the classic gospel, the gospel of grace. Over the next several months, we'll uh, drink deeply of this classic, and we'll find that like the ancient churches of Galatia, we too are often sold something that is billed to us as new and improved. But friends, if the gospel becomes devoid in any way in which it is no longer only grace, then it ceases to be the gospel. The biblical gospel is the good news, not of what we can do for God, but of what God has already done for us. Now, that's easy enough to say, of course, but it's far more difficult to actually believe and to live our lives by that grace. You see, being saved people doesn't always mean that we'll live as saved people. Sometimes we'll struggle to internalize grace, but Galatians will show us the way. This letter of Galatians, six chapters, was originally written by Paul two people who had wandered from the grace they had received. Essentially, they'd fallen prey to a, quote, new and improved gospel. This new and improved gospel said, actually what you need is Jesus plus observing certain rules, and then you'll have salvation. And in what is by far his most passionate and blunt letter, Paul wrote Galatians as a plea for these churches to return to the classic gospel. My hope is that we too will heed this incredible letter. Michelle, one of our newest members, is going to come read for us from Galatians chapter 1. 
We'll read verses 1 to 5. I encourage you when you can to get to know her. She's one of five who were welcomed into the church family last members meeting. But for now, she's going to read for us verses 1 to 5 of Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the church of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We join me in welcoming Michelle and thanking her for reading. Uh, today, we're just covering a few verses because we want to try and lay the groundwork that'll help us understand the rest of the letter together. You know, today when we write an email, or there, there used to be these things called pieces of paper, and you'd write, dear so-and-so at the top, and get a bill, get a, get a letter that's not a bill. This, this is an odd thing that used to occur. I encourage you to try it sometime. When, when we send an email or a letter today, we start with the recipient, but ancient letters didn't do that, and ancient letters started with the sender. And so you'll see here that Galatians, the first word, begins by indicating the human author, Paul. Now, we'll talk more about Paul in the days and weeks ahead because the book gives a very detailed explanation of his backstory. And it'll be wonderful together to learn about Paul's testimony. I hope it'll be an encouragement to us that as we work on continuing to get to know each other that we learn more and more of how God has saved each of us and welcomed us into His uh, big C, the universal church. But here, one thing important for us to see today in terms of Paul is noticing the office that Paul says he held. He uses the word apostle. Now, apostle in the Greek text, the language of the New Testament, simply means one who's sent. And yet, there were particular people who were sent in a special way unlike anybody else that continues to be sent. Originally, these apostles were the 12 disciples talked about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These were people Jesus chose to follow him around as he did his earthly ministry. And the Lord trained them and commissioned them, designated them to start churches and to help get the work off the ground if you will, that Jesus had set out to do. They were commissioned to preach and to write what God had said and what Jesus had done. They had a very unique spiritual authority that no one else today has because there's no more apostles. But their ministry still presses on. You see, you've heard the apostolic teaching today. You, you heard it when we, when we sang. You heard it as Randy prayed when he quoted from a few scriptures. You heard it as Michelle read Galatians 1, 1 to 5. You see, the New Testament is the record of the apostles' teachings and what happened through their ministries. And so while there are new apostles, we still have the blessing of hearing from what God said to them and through them, namely through the New Testament. Now, it's interesting to note, if you look at verse 1, that Paul claims to be an apostle. 
But notice he wasn't one of those original 12. He, at that point, was not a follower of Christ. In fact, he was hardenedly against Jesus. And yet, he's careful here to say that he received this ministry of an apostleship not from man or through man. It's easy to breeze past those words, but those become enormously important for understanding the rest of the book. See, Paul's saying he wasn't an apostle because he won by some popular vote. He wasn't an apostle because a friend convinced him to try it. He wasn't even an apostle because some church chose him to be that. Now, Paul says God the Father and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ hand-selected him. They chose him. That he heard from Jesus himself that he was to be an apostle. Now, why does that matter? Well, to our modern sensibilities, that might sound rather arrogant and self-serving. I mean, imagine a president saying, Jesus himself told me I was to be president. I'll leave that up to you, what you think of that. But Paul's driving concern here was not simply the recognition of his own authority as though he wanted himself to be regarded as someone special. No, what lies underneath this is Paul's concern that the church was turning away from him. And by turning away from him, they were turning away from the gospel. You see, we know from Acts chapter 13 and 14 that on Paul's first great mission trip, he had journeyed through this part of the world in what is modern-day Turkey was ancient Greece, uh, ancient uh, Galatia, sorry. And in Galatia were a series of cities that Paul had gone to. And like he always did, he entered a city, he looked to see if there were any Jews. He started by sharing the gospel with them, and then he started preaching to the people. And God saved them. They were gathered into churches. They were baptized. They committed to each other. And then Paul left and went on to a new city. And sometime after Paul had left, apparently fairly quickly, some false teachers came in and taught that what Paul had said wasn't the full story. He had a truncated gospel. And that who Paul was wasn't sufficient as a teacher, that he wasn't really an apostle. So it seems that these teachers had a new formula for how to be made right with God. And unfortunately, these young churches began to drink of this false gospel. They, they believed these new teachers. And so Paul wrote this letter, and the entire thing from beginning to end is a plea for the churches to return to the classic gospel of grace. That's why Paul was so concerned that they know that God himself designated Paul to be an apostle. You see, his gospel wasn't merely from man. It was divine. It was from God himself. It wasn't merely human. The origin was not Paul's mind, but the very plan and speech of God. And then Paul sort of stacks his argument, if you will, by saying in verse 2 that this gospel was confirmed by the community of faith with Paul. Very likely, this 
is referring to the church that Paul was a part of when he wasn't off on his missionary journeys. This was the church of, of Antioch, Paul's home city, his home church. This apostolic authority is what God used to build the New Testament on. And today, as we gather as a church every Sunday as New Covenant Christians, we do so under what these apostles taught us. And we do so wisely and well as we stay true to what God has said in His Word. Now, one other thing that might be helpful, one other comment to notice about this letter in terms of its introduction is that phrase at the end of verse 2. It says, to the churches of Galatia. That raises the question, of course, what is a church? Well, friends, this early on in church history, by far, almost every church didn't have a building. And yet, there were things called churches. And so it begs the question, what's a church? Well, is a church a building? No. But is the church a denomination? No. Is the church two friends at Starbucks talking about God? No. Is the church a Christian school or a parachurch ministry? No. Then what is the church? Well, historically, theologians have rightly interpreted the Scriptures to be saying that the church is an assembly of Christians. It's where God's people gather together. That's what the word church means, assembly. And it's when God's people gather together among whom the Word of God is rightly preached and the Lord's Supper and baptism are rightly practiced. Now, to put that a different way, a church is a family of Christians who assemble under God's life-giving Word. There might be ten of them in a home or hundreds or thousands in a building. But there are people who gather together under God's good Word and who self-consciously submit their discipleship to each other, first in baptism, and then ongoingly as they take the Lord's Supper together. To use the language of Jesus himself in Matthew 16 and 18, he says that the church is where confessors confess Christ and where the keys are rightly exercised. Those are people who don't live perfect lives, of course, but live repentant lives, who enjoy the great benefits of being committed to one another. Again, that can be a few people taking on those responsibilities in a home, or they can be many, many more, of course, than could fit in this single room. This pattern is clearly seen in Paul's ministry. As he went into a new city, he preached the word. People who believed were baptized. They came together as a body, and they learned and obeyed the one another's and grew as people of Christ. And the word, the apostolic word about Jesus, drove all of that. Now, the form of whatever that commitment was specifically that was made isn't given to us. In other words, beyond the preaching of the word, baptism and the Lord's Supper, how exactly would, for example, someone who left the church in Antioch, and became a part of one of the churches of Galatia, what form would that commitment have made? 
The Scriptures simply don't tell us that. Those of you who are here when we are working our way through the book of Ruth, do you remember how a commitment was made at the end of Ruth? Anybody? They took off a shoe. Thank you, right there. Shoes being held in the sky. Now put it back on. You stink. Uh, they took off a shoe and handed it to the other when that land commitment was made. That was a culturally specific way of saying, I'm in. I'm good for it. You can count on me. Now, thankfully, we don't make commitments that way any longer. The form of the commitment is not what is required in the Scriptures. So you think today of things like signing an application or repeating a statement of faith or affirming a church covenant or going to a membership class or being voted on in a member's meeting. These are all cultural specific ways of making commitments. They're all forms of making and recognizing something of the unity that God has as we make a particular commitment to a particular people in a particular place. The forms are cultural, but the fact of the commitment and the submission to each other, that's normative. That's what churches have always done. The forms will vary, but the essence in Christ is always the same. The church, being baptized believers who confess their shared beliefs and gather together under God's Word to live out the Christian life through ongoingly practicing the Lord's Supper in the one another's. Again, whether that's ten people in a home or a whole bunch of people in a building, that's always what a church is. If you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, you have trusted Him, with your salvation, and yet you're not committed to a particular group of people in whatever culturally appropriate way fits there with those people, then by far the most important next thing you need to do is make that commitment. Whether that's here or somewhere else, frankly, is inconsequential to me. Our elders' concern is simply that you would be committed somewhere. Because it is in the church, in a specific local body of believers, where so many of the joys and blessings and privileges of Christianity are, in fact, lived out. Now, these ancient churches in Galatia had wandered from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, they had wandered from the very heart of what a church is. Friends, do you recognize that that could happen to us? That that could happen to you? We too can wander away. We can slip back into something that sounds like Christianity, but is actually merely a performance religion devoid of any real grace at all. There is always that risk. That's what makes verses 3 through 5 so critically important for us. The dominant idea being made in this section, in those verses, is that grace and peace are Christians' present privileges due to the work of God in Christ. Grace and peace are Christians' present privileges due to the work of God in Christ. 
brother or sister, if Jesus is your Savior and your Lord, grace and peace are already yours. You need do nothing to obtain them. You have already received them. I want to try to apply that to our own hearts in a few minutes, but let's first just make sure we understand them. The essential message of the Bible is not what you can do for God, but rather it is what God has already done for you. Now sure, if you read the Scriptures cover to cover, you will find literally hundreds of commands and morals and ethics. These are, in most cases, not suggestions. They are, in fact, demands that God places upon us. But we've got to get the order of how the Christian life works right. You see, all of these commands have never caused anyone to merit a right relationship with God. You see, you do not obey in order to somehow get grace and peace from God. No, friends, we, brothers and sisters, obey because we already belong to God. All of the obedience that God calls us to as Christians flows out of the grace already given to us. When that order gets flipped around, it might sound like Christianity, but it is in fact a far, far lesser counterfeit. Grace and peace are gifts from God, not merit badges we earn through good behavior. Getting right with God is something only Christ can bring about. Grace and peace from God are not a duet. God doesn't sing his part and then ask us to do ours. No, friend, the gospel, grace and peace to you, they're a solo. They are sung only by Jesus. And all that we do is receive that beautiful song of grace. And by faith and grace and peace, respond. That's it. Everything else in terms of obedience is all a result of God's grace to us. Now, this is seen in such a brilliant way in these few verses. Consider the laser focus of God in the first five verses of Galatians. They are all about what God has already done. It says that God chose Paul for his apostleship. It says that God raised Jesus from the dead. It says that God gives grace and peace. It says that Jesus gave himself for us. It says that Jesus delivered us from this present age. That God planned this and brought it about, and that God gets all the glory. How much do you hear in there of what you're supposed to do? Nothing. This is all grace. The gospel is about what God has done. Jesus gave himself on your behalf to deliver you. He asks that you merit life with him Never, in no way, not a single time, because you can't. This is only what God can do for you. That, brothers and sisters, is the classic gospel. 
the idea of it, the initiative in bringing about, the execution of bringing it to full accomplishment, these all belong to God. Friend, the only thing we brought to the table was our own condemnation, our own enslavement to evil in the present evil age. God brought everything else. He delivered us. He rescued us all by himself. Church, because of our own individual backgrounds, because of the kind of churches we have been in in the past, because of the way our own personalities are wired, some of us will tend to want to take from the gospel, want to make it less, and others of us will want to add to it. We'll want to heap up more requirements. And most of us will lean one way or the other, not both. There's lots of Scripture that speaks to don't take away from it. But in the book of Galatians, we're going to particularly see over and over and over that we must not add to it. Because when we do, then we lose the gospel of grace. We are made right with God by God, not through our obedience. It's Jesus' obedience that saves, not our own. Now, if you're hearing this message for the first time and you've not ever trusted Christ, or perhaps you've been in a church over and over and over, and yet you've only sniffed of Jesus, not really taken of Him, then I want to show you very carefully here what the gospel is. Do you see there in verse 4 how the divine mission works? It says that Jesus gave himself. What that, referring, what, that, what that is referring to is that Jesus, God himself, left heaven, added humanity, lived his life as a Palestinian Jew in the first century in perfect relationship with God the Father did everything you and I are commanded to do, and yet we can't. And then he gave up his life. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave it. He was an active participant in his submission to death. Now why? Well, that's what that next phrase is about. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Friends, the gospel includes the news that you and I deserve nothing but wrath and punishment from God, that we have on our own gone our own way to such a degree that we are dead in sin and unable to come back into a right relationship with God, that a sacrifice had to be made. And Jesus willingly took that sacrifice. He gave himself for our sins. Now, what did that accomplish? Well, that's the next phrase. To deliver us. Some of your Bibles may use the translation to rescue us. Friends, the message of the gospel is that you're in need of a divine rescue. That apart from Jesus, you will remain in hostility towards God and God in hostility toward you forever. And yet Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue. 
Friend, if you will come to recognize that this is true, and you will but turn from a life without God to one with God in Christ, then quite literally, spiritually speaking, everything changes. Many in the room have already experienced this change. We'd love to tell you more. Would you stick around after? Or if you're ready, simply go to God now in prayer. But how about for those of us who are already followers of Jesus? When the remaining couple of minutes we have, I want to try to speak with you, with the church. Church on Mill, do you see that grace and peace are present privileges? This is not merely a terse, cursory greeting. Rather, it is Paul pressing in at the very heart of the gospel. He's saying, you've been rescued. You've been delivered. Your sins have already been accounted for. And therefore, grace and peace are already yours. But brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean throughout the day, every day, we actually believe that. Let me ask a few questions that might help to draw out some things in our own hearts. Friend, do you find that even being a follower of Jesus, that you at times give yourself to what might be called moralism, or the older term, legalism, or works righteousness? Now, those are churchy words, but they are ever-present temptations for us. Let me describe how they might work themselves out in our experience. Do you, do you, when it actually comes down to it, believe that you are what you produce? Whether that's in, in, in sales in your company or on a scorecard at school or on a test when it gets returned to you? Do you find that you're knocked lower and lower when you don't perform? And you are raised higher and higher when you do. Do you find yourself thinking, I am only good and right if the person I want to date thinks of me as good and right? Parents, oddly enough, do you find you only feel good about yourself when your kids feel good about you? Kids, do you find you're, you're only able to sit down on the inside? When your father speaks kindly to you. Now, these are all great things, right? It's great to do well in your sales. And if it's God's will and God's plan to have a girlfriend or boyfriend who speaks well of you and thinks well of you, it's great to have a dad who commends you. And yet, so often we slip into these things becoming the basis for our confidence before God. Maybe if we press even closer to what this book of Galatians is about, do you find yourself happy in God only when you obey God? Do you find yourself thinking God is smiling when you are walking in the way of His grace and truth And God is wringing his hands saying, what am I going to do with you when you're not? 
Friend, do you find it scary to go to God in prayer if it's been a few days? Friend, do you find it terrifying to confess your sin to the Lord? Do you deep down in the inside believe you are only right with God when all the boxes have been checked? Friend, these are all evidences of wandering from the classic gospel into a counterfeit. Because the basis for our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, our status with Him, our place in His family, is only and always a settled fact in Christ. That's it. Should you obey? Yes. Does God care how we behave? Yes. Ought the church collectively together hold people accountable to follow the Lord Jesus Christ who say they love Him? Yes. But all of that from beginning to end flows only from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is already ours in total. Perhaps one of these questions has exposed an area of belief in a new gospel. Our hope and prayer for you is that you would walk back in prayer now to the classic gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would drink deeply of grace and truth, that peace would be rightly appropriated, for it is yours. These are not things you merit by good behavior They are what is already yours in Christ. So brother or sister, you can sit down on the inside at peace. Because in terms of being right with God, you are as right as you could ever be. Your salvation in Christ in terms of justification is already done. And that provides, of course, an unparalleled peace. Does it not? Let's take our journey through the book of Galatians together the rest of the year with a holy seriousness. If you're familiar with other letters Paul wrote, there's 12 more of them. In every other letter Paul wrote, in the introduction, in the greeting, one of the things he would do is give thanks and praise for something about those particular churches. Did you notice that here in Galatia, these churches, he didn't do that? There is no thanksgiving. There is no commendation. Galatians is a stern and serious and dire warning that if the church wanders away from the gospel of grace, then we've wandered away from what a church is. May God deepen our appreciation for belief in and love for Jesus as we consider the way in which he has given us grace and peace. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we get started on this journey of considering how, in fact, the gospel works, and of 
the reality that we too can be people who wander back in individually and even corporately away from the classic gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray today that you would draw us back. Pray particularly for brothers and sisters who are here who are prone to adding to the gospel, to feeling badly about their salvation if they have behaved badly. Father, would you pour out now a full, new, wonderful, deepening realization that grace and peace are already ours in Christ. Would you cause us to look longingly and more deeply on the scandalous gospel of grace? Would you help us to believe down in the very depths of our souls and minds that the gospel is only and always what Christ has already accomplished? Would you help us be a church built on the gospel? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.